0: Good morning. Appreciate all of you and appreciate you being here. Fun to have breakfast and uh, fellowship together. Before I begin the message, I'm going to pray. And as I prepare for that, I wanted to mention that it's kind of hard to talk about Easter and the resurrection without painting the backdrop of why that's so important. And I promised to present the gospel today, and I think that's so critically important. In fact, a couple of you mentioned that in surveys, and I agree. And so this morning, I really want to do that. And a couple of things, I have to go back and to talk about why we need the gospel. But also, I want to pray. I'm praying that we have people that need to hear it. I'm praying that we have that here and online, that maybe you've come in this morning and you're just not sure about your life and your spiritual condition. So I'm asking all of you to pray with me right now, pray throughout the service for those who are in that position, that they will hear the gospel, that they will be moved when they hear it and that we will honor Jesus Christ. And we're definitely this morning leading up to that glorious resurrection event. But I'll paint the backdrop first, so I just want you to understand that. So let's pray. Father, thank you for all you have done. Thank you for uh, the incredible creation we have around us, which reminds us of your glory. It's a glimpse of your glory. As C.S. Lewis said, it's, just, it's, it's a taste of it, but it's not even the final thing, and yet it's still glorious. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who came and gave his life for us, and if he just died and that was it, then we would have no hope, but you accepted his work, you resurrected him, he was given life, that is the great power event of the world history that we have lived in. We thank you for that, Father, and pray that today we'd magnify the Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray the Holy Spirit will hover over us this morning, here and online, Uh, remove the distractions that might be there, don't let our phones ring, Uh, keep us from being pestered and bothered because Satan is constantly poking us, and he would certainly want to do that this morning. So Father, this is your time. We dedicate it to you, and we just uh, pray that you'll speak to us and through us in Jesus' name. Amen. So one thing uh, that I know from living in the Appalachian Mountains for around 15 years is that life in the Appalachians, to me, is the most visceral life I've ever lived anywhere, and you would just have to live there and see it to understand what I meant. And that's a good thing, but uh, it's just really interesting the experiences that I was drawn into pastoring a community. And uh, in small-town life, I had a lot of interaction with our local funeral homes. Students of mine are working there and all those kind of things. and We had good, bad, and ugly difficult situations uh, throughout the years. So when I was in Georgia recently, back in the community, uh, I was encountered with that again. And uh, just one of the examples, we. Uh, a, a, a friend of mine, a colleague from years gone by, uh, passed away, and I was honored to be asked to do her funeral. And so the day of the funeral, I went to the funeral home, we did the funeral. Well, the burial site was going to be a half hour away on the other side of the county, and in a very rural part of the county. So when the funeral procession lined up, the funeral director was a friend of mine named Scott. Scott and I were sitting in the front, of course, and Ruth was lying in the back. So there were just the three of us, and we were in the very back of the procession. Well, Scott is, you know, a good old southern gentleman, and uh, we were driving down a highway, and I am not kidding when I tell you this. Uh, Scott got very upset when people were not stopping for the funeral procession. And so much so that not only in the hearse was he honking at them, but he was swerving the hearse over toward them to get them to stop. And I am not kidding when I say this. Here's my Bible, I swear on my Bible, this happened over and over and over. I mean, we had a really good conversation, but I was sitting here thinking, I wonder if I'm gonna be the next person in the back, you know, the way this is going. But uh, on a more serious note, uh, the challenges of death hit us. A friend of mine, a pastor, uh, Gordon, uh, we were gonna have lunch one day and I got a text that morning from Gordon and he said, I'm not feeling well, I've got COVID, I'm having a rough time, I can't meet. Next thing I knew, Gordon was in the hospital on a ventilator, and he died. Uh, also, not long after I got there one Sunday morning, we had three services because of COVID. It was boom, boom, boom. But after the first service, the uh, worship pastor came up to me and said, I need to talk to you, and he was very concerned. And we went off to the side and he said, one of our choir members just committed suicide at home, was getting ready for church and committed suicide. And so uh, Scott did the funeral and I did, his name was Scott also, but he did the funeral and I did the uh graveside at Georgia National Cemetery. And we're left with a widow wondering why this happened. Why this happened? It's just horrific. Uh, we know that, and I'm not going to. I don't have a fixation on death, and I'm not going to dwell on it the entire sermon. But I want to start there, and I want you to think about a couple of things related to that. The greatest insurance statistic of all is this: one out of every one person will die. That's an unassailable statistic. All of us are going to. And if we're going to talk about Easter, we've got to talk about kind of the dark side. Why did we need Easter? And the truth of it is there is a veil that none of us have gone through, and one day we will, and we will see. There's a lot of different ways to, if you will, slice and dice the human condition, but I want to share the fact that today I'd like to tell you there's really three stories of our existence. Number one is the story of death. Number two is the story of uncertainty. And number three is the story of life. Now, usually we think about going from from life toward death as we get older, but today I'm going to flip it. We're going to start with death and we're going to move to the good stuff. Way back in the Garden of Eden, sin entered the world. And when sin entered the world, death entered the world. And of course, it was a spiritual death first. When the first couple ate from the fruit, they were immediately separated from God. I mean, you know that, but I'm going to put a twist on it today you haven't thought about. Physical death also entered the world, but they didn't die until later. But in the Garden of Eden, death entered the world physically. What was the first being to die? We don't know specifically what kind of animal, but an animal died. Why? Because when Adam and Eve put on fig leaves, it wasn't enough. Fig leaves don't work very long term. So the Lord God took an animal and skinned it, and death entered the world. And we know theologically, I'm just going to say this quickly, and we'll move on. We can talk about it some other time. I believe it was a Christophany that it was Jesus Christ himself who was in the Garden of Eden, who sacrificed the animal. So the first physical death in history was committed by Jesus Christ himself. And what do you think he was thinking of when he sacrificed that animal? As he was cutting up that animal, he was thinking, it's an animal right now. Someday it will be me. Someday it will be me. In our sin and rebellion, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. We know that from the book of Romans. Way short. And if you're short of his glory, you can't dwell with him eternally. One of the greatest quotes I've ever heard is this. Sin is our way of telling God that we don't want him in our life. And hell is God's way of granting our wish. Sin is our way of telling God that we don't want him in our life. And hell is God's way of granting our wish. Think about that. That's powerful. It's only a matter of time. And after dealing with death all of these years, and I really have been, I don't know about you, but I hate death. Anybody agree? I despise death. I want to tell you an extremely personal story. hope I get through this, but I want to lay it out there and tell you about it. In October 1990, my dad was diagnosed with bladder cancer. As his treatment proceeded, things got much worse. The chemo was horrific. My parents seemed to be confused about his condition and and about what the doctors were saying, and I was getting different points of view. So in the summer of 1992, while visiting them in Florida, I went to the oncologist's office without an appointment Unannounced. Imagine doing that today. And without telling my parents. The oncologist, pardon me, graciously agreed to see me. And I asked him to be straight up with me. I said, what is my dad's situation? I'm confused. I'm getting different points of view. I want to know. Be straight. And he was. And he bluntly told me that when he opened up my father to treat the bladder cancer that he saw that also there was prostate cancer, and he was very blunt. He said, the prostate cancer is what is going to get him, and I knew that when I opened him up. Your dad has three to six months to live. You know, I wasn't certain of my dad's spiritual condition, and yes, I had tried to share the gospel with him. He did say he accepted Christ, but I didn't see it as a priority in his life, so I just did not know. But when I was going through the time period of watching my dad head toward death, it had an impact on me that nothing else had. It took me to a new place. That year I spoke to a youth conference in Georgia in the mountains, and I will never forget because I was so passionate about my dad and the situation with fervency I preached the gospel. We had 20 kids say they received Christ that day. And it was because that's where my heart was. And meanwhile, dad beat the doctor's odds and he survived for more than a year. On Friday, September 3, 1993, I drove up to Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina with a friend. We were going to go the next day to Duke University because my alma mater, Florida State, was contending for the national championship. They were playing Duke in football that weekend. And so we got to Raleigh-Durham stayed with friends, and around 3 in the morning, there was a knock on the door. And in my sleep, just even in my sleep, I knew what it meant. Susie was calling to say that my dad had died. In my grogginess and pain, I called Delta Airlines and I booked a flight to Tampa that morning. And it was around 3.30 in the morning and I didn't want to wake anybody in the house. So I walked outside and on a beautiful, breezy evening, a night, I leaned against the trunk of my car and I started to process the death of my hero. Dad came from a broken home and he dropped out of high school during the, to join the Navy during World War II. He would end up on Iwo Jima. He was a forward air controller in North Korea, or in Korea, pardon me, South Korea, and flew out of Saigon during the Vietnam War. Today, he is buried at the National Cemetery at Naval Air Station, Pensacola, and several times a week, the Blue Angels fly over his grave, which I think is pretty cool. But life had burned my dad in many, many ways, and over the years, I had tried to get inside, but it was impossible. He would not let us in. So in the middle of a North Carolina night, I was standing outside trying to make sense of it all, and as I thought about his condition, It hit me like a missile. What if dad is in hell? The feeling was overwhelming. It really was. And I began to sob. But I stopped myself and I said, Sid, you can't do this to yourself. You just can't. You'll never figure it out this side of heaven. What is done is done. I really thought that what is done is done. Your father has made his choice. And he's gonna live with it one way or the other. He is now facing his destiny and you must go on and you must continue to share the word. And so my friends, what we see on this side of the void is what we see, but we cannot see beyond. And, and you know, if you've had a loved one die, not a day goes by that I don't think of my dad. And I don't wish I could be with him. Until then though, we are profoundly, massively uncertain about the future. God numbers our days, but he doesn't email us with the number, does he? So we live day by day, not knowing the time of, or the manner of our departure. It's like the story I told a couple of weeks ago. It reminds me of flying on a certain airline. But seriously, we don't know the time or the manner of our departure. In 1984, Susie and I drove out to Southern California with her parents uh, to see her brother. And heading into Los Angeles the night we drove in there, we're on the freeway, we're driving into LA, it's night. And we come up the hill on the freeway and we see lights in our lane pointing at us. Our lane, Los Angeles at night on the freeway. This is not your best day now, your best life now. As we got up to the scene, we saw what I remember as being a yellow convertible in our lane facing toward us. And as her father pulled over to the side, I saw a lady in either a bathrobe or a nightgown crawling across the freeway to the median. So we got out, and obviously the traffic's still flowing by at fast speed, so we ended up having to leave pretty quickly or we would have been killed as well. And I will not go into detail, except that when I went up to the car and I looked inside, I saw the driver and was pretty clear that she did not make it. And next to the car was a motorcycle on its side, and the motorcyclist didn't make it either. So my point is this: when the day started, none of the ladies or the motorcyclists thought that they would face their destiny by the end of the evening, in a matter of hours. It's the great mystery, isn't it? And. If you're intellectually honest, whoever you are, you don't know what's going to happen in your life. And so a lot of people will mock Christians and they'll be cynical and they'll say, well, you know, these stupid Christians, you know, they say all this kind of stuff. But the truth is, nobody knows, right? None of us know what's going to happen. And so you can mock all you want, but when you mock, that doesn't mean you have an answer. It just means you're making fun of other people. And if you're a believer, it's excruciating to go through life with your loved ones basically in a position where you're just uncertain about their condition, right? It's excruciating. I've heard this from friends over and over for years. But I don't think we grasp the significance of Easter until we have somehow closely encountered death and understand what it really means. Now on Easter, we should talk about the happy stuff for sure. I promised I would give the gospel today though, so I wanted to paint the backdrop. So let me tell you a little story about Albert Einstein and Billy Graham tells the story and uh, I looked it up to see if, is this really true? And apparently it was. Albert Einstein was once traveling from Princeton, New Jersey on a train when the conductor came down the aisle punching the tickets of every passenger. When he came to Einstein, Einstein reached into his vest pocket. But he couldn't find his ticket, so he reached into his inner pockets. But his ticket was not there, and he looked in his briefcase, and he couldn't find it. And then he looked in the seat beside him, he still couldn't find it. So the conductor says, Dr. Einstein, I know who you are. We all know who you are. I'm sure you bought a ticket. Don't worry about it. Einstein nodded appreciatively. The conductor continued down the aisle, punching tickets. As he was ready to move to the next car, he looked back and he saw the great physicist Einstein on his knees looking for his ticket. The conductor rushed back and said, Dr. Einstein, Dr. Einstein, don't worry. I know who you are, no problem. You don't need a ticket, I'm sure you bought one. And Einstein looked at him and said, young man, I, too, know who I am. What I don't know is where I'm going. (laughs) Speaking of geniuses, let's talk about, for just a moment, Stephen Hawking. Uh, And I say this with all due respect. Uh, Several years ago, I happened to be in Boston. YWAM was starting a new ministry in Boston. And I went up to do their board retreat and their first board meeting. And my host was driving me through Boston and Cambridge. And... uh, They pointed out at this beautiful brick building, they said, Stephen Hawking lives up there. And I thought, well, that's interesting. So ever since, um, you know, I've thought about Hawking. Hawking once said, I have lived with the prospect of an early death for the last 49 years. I'm not afraid of death, but I'm in no hurry to die. I have so much I want to do first. I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. But here's the thing. That's easy to say when you're on this side of the veil. What would Hawking say now, would be my question. You might remember uh, Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote a famous poem. Uh, I studied it in high school, maybe you did as well. Crossing the bar, anybody recognize that? Crossing the bar, sometimes it's spoken at funerals twilight and evening bell, and after that, the dark, and may there be no sadness or farewell when I embark. For though from the born of time and place, the flood may bear me far, I hope to see my pilot face to face when I have crossed the bar. You know, he said, I hope to see my pilot face to face. In our general language, the word hope is a word filled with uncertainty. It means basically a roll of the dice, Somebody said, don't roll the dice if you can't pay the price, but our dice are already rolling on the table. But the good news is that in the New Testament, the word hope means confident assurance. It means certainty. My friends, you can be certain of your final destiny, but that faith that you have to have has to have an object, and who is it? So let's get into the scriptures, and I want to show you what I think happened to be the greatest event of uncertainty in history. Would you turn with me to John chapter 19? Uh, the other night, Friday night, Good Friday, we, um, we read John, read through John, and uh, I want to take you to John now. and We're going to start in John 19, starting in verse 30. John 19, 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. In the Greek, that's not three words, that's one word, Greek word, tetelestai. And I mention this because that word is in the perfect tense in the Greek, which means the event has happened, but the results continue. The results continue. The act has been done. Jesus died for sin 100%, completely, totally. Jesus died to pay the payment for your sin. And if you walked in today burdened with sin and guilt and shame, Jesus has died for all of it. And I think we have to lock hold of the fact that when he died for it, he died for all of it, for all time, forever. Every sin you've ever thought about doing, every sin you're thinking about now, every sin you committed in the past, every sin you will commit in the future was died for by Jesus on the cross. Amen? Amen. All of it was paid for. And I don't think we emphasize that enough. The atonement is done. Every bit of it is complete. Your debt has been totally paid off. And the government doesn't even have to do it. Jesus did it. So in John 19, verse 38, after he died, I'm going to skip down to verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, and was a wealthy man, but secretly asked for for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, remember Nicodemus, John chapter 3, you must be born again, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes these were things used to anoint the body of Jesus about 75 pounds in weight that's a lot of anointment so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid so because of the Jewish day of preparation since the tomb was close at hand they laid Jesus there Now Matthew adds that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. So I just want to make the point, this is not a political point, but I just want to say the last people to leave the cross were the women and the first to arrive at the tomb on Sunday morning were women. They had not totally given up. If nothing else, if nothing else, they wanted to honor the Lord in his death. They owed him that at least. But what happened with the 12 disciples? Well, now 11 disciples. Well, basically, they turned tail and ran. So put yourself in the sandals of the disciples. Imagine their pain and discouragement. Jordan touched on this briefly. Let's flesh this out for a second. They were emotionally eviscerated. At one point, they wanted seats of honor with Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And yet, when everything came down... They cut and they ran on him. In fact, when you read in the Greek what happened when Peter denied Jesus Christ the, third, the three times, and the third time he used profanity, if not obscenity, very strongly denying absolutely that he knew Jesus. So this was his final memory. And it wasn't just Peter. The other disciples abandoned Jesus as well. They were afraid of being caught. They were defeated and they were ashamed. So understand that Friday night after the crucifixion, the disciples were entering a weekend of massive uncertainty. They were saying stuff like this, we have followed this teacher for the last few years, and we were wrong. We got all wrapped up in him, and we threw several years of our lives down the drain. We'll never make that mistake again. We're going to have to get home and revive our businesses. If we focus on that and stay busy, that maybe we can put this horrible experience behind us for now. Maybe when we're old we can sort it all out, or maybe not. Maybe we'll be bouncing our grandchildren on our knees and we won't care. That's what they were going through. And so there's this sense in which we look back in time because we know what's going to happen Sunday and we read into it, but at the time, Saturday was a horrible day. It was the greatest time of uncertainty in world history, and it had been publicly revealed that there—it had not been revealed there was eternal victory not yet—and they were looking down at their feet, and they were seeing nothing but d feet. In Luke 24, remember, two disciples walking on the Emmaus road, last chapter in Luke. Jesus comes alongside; they don't recognize it. These disciples were downcast. And I love this uh, comment by A.J. Swoboda. I just saw this yesterday in Christianity Today. He said, For them, the original Saturday would have been torturous. Jesus had died, and there was no way in the world to know if he would return. We call Friday good because we can see things from our angle. Tell that to the first people who lost Jesus, they'd have called it Hell Friday. So it might be in here or online, somebody's living with uncertainty and you're just not sure. You're just not sure about your condition. But as the hours ticked by that Saturday night when things were uncertain, I I imagine the disciples went to bed tossing and turning and then dawn started to come. And before dawn, the faithful Mary Magdalene left her house and headed to the tomb. And in John chapter 20, verse 1, it says, let's get to the good stuff. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that was John, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and John have this race to the tomb. And they finally got there. And once they got there, and once they saw it, they saw and believed, for they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. But then the disciples went back to their homes. And just imagine what was on their minds. Their minds would have been blown. And so now we have the story of life. And now they're trying to figure it out. Jesus was resurrected from the dead. He really did mean it when he said he would rise in three days. I get it now, but they didn't get it before. It's amazing. And so what we find now is what was defeated was not Jesus, it was not the disciples, but it was death itself. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. It is a big chapter, and for the sake of time, I am going to start with verse 16, but turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. And in verse 16 it says, For if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also let those who have fallen asleep then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Verse 19 if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied, because on the other side of the void is uncertainty and pain. But verse 20, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. The firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man, Adam, came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die in their sins, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. And in verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. In verse 28, "When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all." And verse 42, so it is, with the resurrection of the dead, what is sown is perishable. We all know our bodies are perishable, right? I'm, I won't tell you how old I am, but I'm at that age where the body parts are not functioning quite the way I want them to, and I remember back when I ran when I was younger and how easy that was, and now I think about it now, and it's like, you know, a wounded elephant trying to tromp down the road. But what is raised is imperishable, and it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there also is a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. So you have a physical life, but will you also have a spiritual life? In other words, an eternal relationship with God. That's the issue. And that's what it meant when Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Born once... You must be born again spiritually. Nicodemus, of course, did not understand, and I don't think we would have either. And so Nicodemus was like, oh, what do you mean be born again? Well, I have to go back to my mother's womb. And Jesus explained, no, that's not what I mean. So look at verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. I ask you, when will that moment be? What day? What time? Anybody know? We don't. We live in the uncertainty of not knowing when it's going to be, but we have faith it will come at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when that happens, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Would you repeat that after me? Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He gets right in the face of death and says, Where are you? You have nothing. Verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you repeat after me? But thanks be to God, but be to God. who gives us the victory. Through our Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. So in verse 58 at the end, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And I know you've heard this, but I'd like to say it again. I've read the end of the book, and what? We win. We win. We'll be with God. Death is defeated. We will not have to face hell. We will not have to face death. We win. Now, here in 1 Corinthians 15, death is personified. It's spoken up as a person. So let's pick up on that for a second. And to use the modern vernacular, let me put it this way. Will this communicate to you? Jesus curb stopped death. How? Through his own death. Jesus pummeled the grave. He blew the grave to smithereens. Of his own will, Jesus the rock slapped mortality on a stage for all the world to see. Yes, I went there. And Jesus said to Satan, you have no place here. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. This really, truly changes everything. Because we have the glory of Jesus Christ. Death is no longer our enemy. Death no longer holds on us. Just take the time this weekend to think about the fact Jesus totally paid your sins they're all done there's none that still exist in the sense of needing to be atoned for it's over so my friends how much longer do you have to live who knows but i'm telling you we're getting closer and closer by the day to our time of glory it's not that long and that's why paul said always abound in the work of the lord knowing it's not in vain we don't have that much longer uh, y'all, any of y'all ever heard the, uh, the group New Song goes back a few ways? Uh, I kind of knew them, and back in 1987, Eddie Carswell wrote an incredible anthem. In fact, outside of the Hallelujah Chorus for me, this might be the most rousing Easter anthem of all. And New Song sang it, and it's called Arise, My Love. The problem is, I was typing this out, and I was thinking, I really want to sing it, but I can't, you know, and I'll, I'll drive you crazy. But maybe next year we'll sing it. Arise, my love. Some of the uh, lyrics. Not a word was heard at the tomb that day, just shuffling soldiers' feet as they guarded the grave. One day, two days, three days had passed. Could it be that Jesus breathed his last? All hell seemed to whisper, just forget him, he's dead. Then the father looked down to the son and said. "'Arise, my love! Arise, my love! "'The grave no longer has a hold on you. "'No more death sting. "'No more suffering. "'Arise, arise, my love!' "'The earth trembled and the tomb began to shake. "'Like lightning from heaven, the stone was rolled away, "'and as dead men, the guards stood there in fright "'as the power of love displayed its might. "'Then suddenly a melody filled the air, Riding wings of wind, it was everywhere. The words all creation had been longing to hear. The sweet sound of victory so loud and clear. Sin, where are your shackles? Death, where is your sting? Hell has been defeated. The grave could not hold the king. Arise, my love, arise, my love. The grave no longer has a hold on you. No more death sting. No more suffering. Arise, arise, arise. And like the disciples, if we go looking for Jesus now, we will not find him in a grave. We'll find him at the right hand of God. Amen. Amen. Would you bow your head and close your eyes, please? Whether you're online or whether you're here in person, I would like for you to contemplate something now, and I'm having everybody bow their heads and close their eyes to give us a moment to dwell on this. This morning we painted the picture of death. We all face death, but also there's that uncertainty we have in life. We're not sure for our personal sakes of our destiny, unless we have something solid that we can lean on. And in our own lives, we know that our lives are mortal, that they're going to fail at some point. But the testimony of the Bible and of God is that Jesus, his son, came to die for our sins. And in dying, like I've tried to say many times today, he died for all of it, it was finished, it was complete. Every sin you've ever committed or will commit has been paid for. The question now is merely a question of will you receive his work? Will you throw yourselves at his feet and say, I receive your salvation for me, your death for me. I am yours, I am yours. I totally rely upon you for my salvation. All my life I've been going the other way, but now I want to go with you because you have died for me and you are my God. Now there's no magic formula for this, so I just want to guide you in this as you're thinking about it. If never before in your life have you ever yielded to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, I receive you as my Savior, I am giving you this time right now, I am offering it to you as a gift to give you a chance to clarify this in your life and to make sure it is certain that you know you have eternal life because of Jesus Christ, your Lord. So what I'm asking you to do is in your heart, in the quietness of your heart, say, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I realize that I have been a sinner going in the wrong direction. I now receive you as my Savior. Come into my life and make me yours. And make me yours. Now right now while we're all together with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. If today for the first time ever in your life. You have come to this point to receive Jesus Christ as your savior. And you have prayed this prayer or something like it this morning. Would you slip up your hands right now? Amen. Amen. And I'd like to ask you to do something. If you're willing, it's up to you. But if you're willing, would you boldly stand right now if today, for the first time ever, you have prayed to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Would you stand right now? Father God, thank you so much for those who have responded to you. It may be, Father, that there are those out in internet land who have been watching this morning and who have responded in the quietness of their homes, perhaps they have said, you know what, I need to get it right. I need to respond to Jesus Christ. And if so, Father, I just pray they would contact us, that we would know that we'd be able to help them. Father, just give us the wisdom to to reach out to those around us. And Father, I pray that with all of our Bible teaching and all of our fellowship and all of the great things we're doing as a church, that we would not forget that if we do not become sensitive and aware of those who are around us who have no hope, that all we have done is create a country club while the world's going to hell. So, Father, in the weeks ahead, make us sensitive to those around us who need to know your truth. And I thank you so much for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I give him the glory. Amen.